Benjamin Disraeli used to say that he was born in a library because his father Isaac was a famous writer and intellectual. To what extent was that true of you too, Mr. Netanyahu? Because your father, Benzian, was an historian, uh, the editor of the Encyclopedia Hebraica, a professor at Cornell, uh, and of course the author of a groundbreaking book on the origins of the Spanish Inquisition. What effect did your father have on your understanding of history and, and especially Jewish history? Enormous. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, Disraeli grew up in a library. I grew up uh, in a historian's library. First of all, we were surrounded by books, and I was surrounded by my father. I found many years afterwards, uh, when I uh, visited my childhood home, boxes with notebooks from fifth grade. And they were history notebooks from my classes in history. We studied history. And there were learned essays there written in a child's handwriting. And clearly they were dictated by him. Uh, <laughs> but it was uh, it was a, a stellar influence. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think it shaped uh, much of my, uh, my thinking uh, because it was so uh, powerful. He was a very original thinker. He was uh, uh, totally fearless in uh, checking facts and taking him where the facts uh, would lead him. But he had, uh, uh, he had a totally independent mind and in his uh, understanding of history, not only Jewish history, but uh, general history was something that he uh, communicated to me and it shaped my thinking. It also shaped my mission. There's no uh, point in being in politics as far as I'm concerned, in order to sit there. Uh, uh, you are either charged with a historical mission uh, or you're not. I was and still am. And it's largely due uh, uh, from his influence, without a question. And he said that uh, he told you that education was the greatest prerequisite for a leader, uh, didn't he? I mean, do you, you think that's true? The courage, presumably, must also be another one. Well, no, I, I asked him before I became prime minister. Uh, first of all, you have to understand, we never discuss politics at home. We discuss history a lot. We never discuss politics, uh, maybe with one exception, one conversation, uh, but we never discussed day-to-day uh, 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 -day politics. Uh, it just didn't enter the conversation, neither uh, when I was a child or much later as an adult. He just didn't deal with that. But we did discuss historical currents, historical events, world events, uh, a great deal. But before I became prime minister, I asked him, what do you think is the prerequisite quality for being a prime minister of Israel. That was my question. And he answered that, what do you think? And I said, well, you have to have a vision, you have to have a, a, a commitment to that vision. Uh, you have to have also the flexibility to navigate uh, your way through the, uh, the various obstacles in order to achieve uh, your vision. He said, well, that's true of anything. He said, it's true of a university professor. It's true of a in many ways of a military commander, it's true of a business leader. There is something else that is required for being the prime minister of Israel. And I said, what? And then he said this word that astounded me. He said, education, you need a very deep and broad education. Otherwise, he said, you'll be at the mercy of your clerks. And that is a, that is a very, uh, I would say a very penetrating uh, and true statement, which uh, I found to to be true every it's, day that 
of my five, 15 years as a, of service as Israel's prime minister every day. Let's talk about your education. Other than your father, did you have any charismatic history teachers during your schooling? Because it couldn't have been very easy being your history teacher, knowing that your father was one of Israel's most distinguished scholars. I had good ones. I don't remember any ones that uh, deeply inspired me, but uh, I read books from a very young age that deeply inspired me. Perhaps the one that, uh, the ones that uh, made the greatest impression on me is uh, uh, in, in my youth and still does today, I still do today is um, Will Durant's uh, Story of Civilization, which I read, it's voluminous, it's 11 volumes. I read um, a great deal of it. And his summations, his wonderful books. Uh, that uh, he was a wonderful historian, a wonderful writer. Uh, so that definitely had a, an impact on me. Uh, and there are others, obviously. Uh, but the, these uh, these books, um, I was steeped in Jewish history, but only but because of my father's influence, always looking at it in the broader context of general history, the uh, the rise and fall of empires, the stitches of time that we could find to uh, uh, advance the cause of uh, Jewish uh, independence um, and the, the places where we failed, not realizing the uh, the geopolitical uh, historical events that were taking place around us. That is something that I, I was raised from childhood with. And do you think mankind learns these lessons? Do we learn from the past? Have you seen evidence in it in the in the great world events that you've witnessed in your own career? That's not clear. That's a continuous, uh, continuously debated question in my mind. Do we learn from it? Well, uh, given the way that we're dealing with uh, the threat from Iran, that is this uh, a malignant force that could uh, bring uh, nuclear weapons to uh, a theological uh, dictatorship, I would say it doesn't look like we've learned anything from it. Uh, I think that uh, we, we think we do, but we're constantly uh, put to the test. The jury is always out on this question. Uh, I would say we, you, you know, it's Martin Luther King's uh, observation that the, uh, you know, the arc of uh, history tends towards the positive, right? Well, yes and no. It's not, it's not at all clear. Uh, there are technological advances. There are advances in uh, humankind. I read, uh, uh, I think it's uh, this uh, Harvard uh, uh, scholar Pinker who says that uh, you know we're all the time advancing because the level of violence is decreasing, the level of mortality is decreasing, and so on. Uh, but uh, also the level of potential destruction is increasing, and it's not it's not clear that we glean uh, the lessons that are necessary. It is a fact that um, you know people think well, uh, humanity is moving forward because the, the better angels of our nature are, uh, you know, will, will secure us. Well, when Lincoln said that, he had just crushed the, predator, the Confederacy. You know, it wasn't yes, that, and, you know, or was about to crush the Confederacy into yeah. um, slavery with the, the force of arms. It wasn't because there were better angels of, uh, 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 of the nature of the Confederacy, right? No, so, and also the, the, the Stephen uh, Pinker theory that you're, referring to i mean it could it could change in an afternoon couldn't it it's a, it's a, there's a, there is an arc but it might uh, it it wouldn't take much as you mentioned the iranians it's, it's just a, suddenly if there is to, one, it's quite like, brittle 
It's a brittle. That's right. But, yes. But yes, I, exactly. I would say, look, I, I would think that there is a constant uh, battle between the, the forces of modernity and the forces of medievalism. That's what we face today in the Middle East, facing militant mm. Islam. Facing militant Islam is only not only Israel, but many of our Arab neighbors uh, who understand that their future uh, is also could be compromised and endangered and crushed by these uh, these uh, forces that hark back to a, a very dark past. So I would say that you can continue <coughs> you continue to move the arc forward if uh, the arch forward if you have the necessary uh, will um, and, and power to uh, to protect civilization and to nurture it. But it could easily be wiped away by um, larger forces. We used to think that, uh, and this is a common theory, I've read uh, many books on this. Uh, I mean, Victor uh, David Hansen has uh, uh, written that, well, we have an innate advantage, the democracies have an advantage because of the freedom and initiative. We, uh, you know, we invent things, so we invent better weapons, and we have uh, the initiative of uh, commanders and soldiers and so on. Uh, and therefore, we should we, we always triumph. Uh, I hope so, but it's not obvious. Here you have a, an anti-hill economy uh, in North Korea. It's about 5 to 10% of Israel's GDP, even though their population is many times over ours. And they're manufacturing ICBMs. They're manufacturing nuclear weapons. They're probably manufacturing hypersonic missiles, too. So it is not clear at all that the future of civilization is automatically, as I know it, free civilization, creative civilization, the ones that enshrine the freedoms that make life worth living. It's not obvious that these, uh, that this civilization has uh, a guaranteed future or guaranteed victory. It's not true. And this, and this naturally brings us on to Sir Winston Churchill, of whom you're a great admirer. Um, yes. What is it about his life and career that's, that's inspired you over the years? Well, just that, the resolution, the resolution to protect uh, uh, our free civilizations. Uh, by the way, Churchill's worldview, as I see it, was not uh, simply that he was, uh, you know, belonging to the British Empire. He was a 19th century uh, uh, example of, uh, uh, you know, a patriot of the British Empire. I think it was more than that. I think he was a civilizational, uh, had a civilizational view, at least. I read that in... Uh, I think in your book, among many others. <laughs> Thank you for the free plug there, Bibi. <laughs> so, well, it's an excellent biography. I'm, I'm giving you a plug, and you didn't ask me to do that, but it's an excellent biography. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, but that wasn't enough. He was willing to muster the forces, his own personal forces, and the forces of uh, the British people, and to an extent, uh, the free world to protect those freedoms. That's what I admire about him. And he did so uh, uh, at considerable personal cost, which he was willing to bear. Um, let's move on to another hero of yours, uh, Aaron Aronson. Uh, let, me just say about, yeah, let me just say about yeah. Churchill, there's a question that I always raise in my mind. And people say, well, he saved, uh, he saved the world. Uh, in many ways he did, but now comes the problem. Uh, Suppose he hadn't. Suppose he hadn't. And, uh, you know, it's the what ifs that you, I think that people always ask, and maybe you, you I'm going to ask you, well, I'm going to ask you one later. So what where, if? Absolutely. Well, I'll give you a what if right now about Churchill. Suppose he hadn't. 
Suppose he failed. Uh, would we have lost? Would we have entered a, you know, a thousand years of darkness? And the answer is, I don't think so. Because uh, when you look at where the, the Germans were on their nuclear program, uh, and it's very clear from the, uh, those uh, tapes of the uh, German scientists after, uh, you know, which, which were sitting in uh, whatever, in this compound in Britain, that they didn't have a, they didn't have a clue. Uh, they were on the wrong side. So if you compare that to uh, the Manhattan Project, they were, they were on the right path. So if the United States would have de developed uh, nuclear weapons, yes, uh, all of Europe and Britain would have been conquered, but Germany didn't stand a chance. The counter argument to that, you could raise it, would be that if, uh, uh, if Churchill hadn't put up a stand, would America have uh, felt compelled to develop the uh, uh, Los Alamos, and would they have done uh, these things? So, you know, probably uh, you can't answer that. If we, well, if we're going down that, that rat, if we're going down that, well, what do you, uh, what do you think? We well, I mean, two other things about that um, uh, would be, of course, first of all, that an awful lot of the scientists that did make the breakthroughs at Los Alamos were British and Europeans, who, had they been well, captured were, by, I think, by Hitler, hold would, would hold have. It, uh, I, I, I'm going to challenge that. I think they were Hungarian Jews, mostly. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. Well, but, a, but a Hitler victory doesn't mean that you get as many uh, Hungarian Jews or even uh, the, the Danish um, scientists and various other Have people to. who are necessary, you know. Uh, but as you say, and the other thing, as, as you say, is that it required billions upon billions to be um, poured into that project, which might not have happened if um, America had come to some kind of a deal with, uh, with Hitler after the fall of Europe. Yeah, I, I, I don't think this in any way diminishes uh, Churchill's historical <laughs> importance, uh, mind you, I, I think it was crucial. But I, I often ask myself the question, and I, uh, you know, the what ifs are never answered, you never know. Um, let's move on to Aaron Aronson, because not much is known about him in Britain or in the uh, United States, I would say. But, uh, but he is a hero of yours and, uh, and fully deserves to be. Tell us about him and, and what you admire about him. Well, Aaron Aronson was a brilliant uh, agronomist, a brilliant scientist, who at the age of 32 discovered the mother of wheat, which has fed uh, countless millions in, in the world since then. He was, he was so admired that... Uh, when he visited the United States, everybody, literally everybody, uh, you know, uh, uh, carried them on their shoulders when he was a young man. When he, uh, uh, when the Ottomans uh, entered the war, uh, the First World War, he immediately saw the great opportunity to have the Ottoman Empire defeated. And he understood that the rise of Israel could only come if the Ottomans were defeated. They were there for 400 years. Uh, occupying our ancestral homeland, and they could be there another 400 years. He said, this is the opportunity to oust them, and he wanted to help the British uh, uh, in, uh, in kicking them out from uh, what was then Palestine. So uh, he uh, set up a spy ring uh, of uh, 30 very brave people who fed information to uh, the British command in, uh, uh, in Egypt, uh, to Allenby's command, uh, and he, uh, it helped them um, conquer the, the country. Alan B. later said, and many of his uh, officers said that he was the most valuable uh, spy uh, agent that they had 
in the Middle East and perhaps during the entire war. He, he was, um, he, he really did extraordinary things. But for example, he went to the British, uh, to the uh, Turkish governor. And he said, uh, because he was so famous, he said, uh, I'll help you with this locust, this uh, uh, swarming locust bands that uh, the locust uh, uh, plague that was uh, uh, just sweeping the country. And he said, of course, you know, locusts don't recognize uh, the boundaries of military bases. So my men will have to go in there to make all their <laughs> exams and so on. So he fed the British invaluable information and told them that uh, the attack route that they should have was not through Gaza, which uh, failed twice with uh, horrendous cause, but through Beersheba. And uh, in many ways that helped, uh, uh, helped uh, the conquest, which later indeed threw the Ottomans out of the country. Uh, he also was, uh, along with Weizmann, helped uh, uh, advance the uh, Balfour Declaration, which was the, uh, you know, the uh, beginning of a, a document that led to the recognition of Zionism, the idea of a, a Jewish national home and later a state uh, where Israel is right now. He was sitting in the other room with Chaim Weizmann when uh, Mark Sykes, who was uh, part of that commission that drafted this, uh, the Balfour Declaration, burst into the room and he said, uh, uh, it's a boy. It's been delivered. <laughs> well, sitting right next to Chaim Weizmann was Aaron Aronson. So, in, uh, so he was uh, exceptionally important and ex exceptionally influential. The reason I think about him is not only because of his crucial role in helping uh, liberate our homeland from Turkish rule, uh, but I think also because he was the one person that I believe could have broken British policy that soon turned against us and shut the gates of our homeland and basically trapped uh, 6 million Jews in the, uh, in the oven that was Europe. That was, uh, we couldn't get them out. And um, uh, unfortunately he died he, in a plane crash over the English Channel in, uh, in 1920. So he wasn't available in the interwar years uh, to break the, uh, to help break that policy, which I, I think he would have done in the United States, uh, because I, I think he would have realized what my father uh, had realized, that the only place to change British policy was not in Britain, but actually in America, the rising power in the world. Uh, so why, why is he so, why do I believe he was so powerful? Because he had a, a, an extraordinary intellect. He must have read about 30,000 books. Uh, there is an American diplomat called uh, uh, Bullitt, William Bullitt. He was, yeah. um, William Bullitt was a personal uh, assistant of Woodrow Wilson and then of FDR. FDR appointed him as the U.S., uh, the first American ambassador in Moscow, so you understand how important he was. He was personally involved with Churchill, uh, with uh, de Gaulle, and with Stalin. And Bullitt wrote, after Aronson's death, that Aronson was the most impressive figure he ever met. Now, let's face it, he met some impressive figures. <laughs> say that he worked with two American presidents. He met wow. other historical figures, one of which we just discussed. And yet William Bullitt says that Aronson was the most impressive person he ever met. Uh, in fact, uh, 20 years after his death in 1940, he, he visited uh, what is now Israel, and he went especially to uh, the north of Israel to Atlit to visit Aronson's grave. So I think we lost here an enormous figure because our problem was in the interwar years that we couldn't break uh, 
the gates of Europe, the gates to our land, and save millions of Jews. Uh, and I think Aronson would have been the indispensable figure. So some people, in fact, uh, who could have done this, I believe some people are indispensable, and Aronson was one of them. And yet he's not at all as well known as, as someone like Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia, um, or at least in this country. What's your, what's your view of the long-term legacy of, uh, of T.E. Lawrence? Well, <clears throat> well, I think Lawrence was very fortunate to have uh, Lowell Thomas, who, uh, who, <laughs> yeah. who, who give him, gave him a, a, a tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous buildup. Look, Lawrence was, uh, was an intriguing figure. He was uh, obviously a, uh, an intellectual statesman. He understood uh, the, the opportunities to drive a wedge between the Arabs and the Turks, and he did it in his own way. I think that um, uh, his own contribution has been uh, magnified because of the dramatizations, uh, the play that Thomas put on, and uh, then the film, an excellent film, uh, I think that David Lean did. But uh, if you actually examine it historically, as you, you know, my father would and you would, uh, I think, uh, and I in my own am amateurish way, I don't think, I think Lawrence had I think he understood the Arab world perfectly. I think Seven Pillars of Wisdom, if you read it carefully, uh, is, uh, <laughs> you know, is uh, quite precise in many ways. But he was, um, uh, he was also part showman. So I think he, uh, I think he magnified uh, his own contribution. And I think uh, in many ways, if you ask me who was more important, I think Aronson was more important because he, he gave the strategic uh, path that broke the Ottoman uh, rule. And I think the raids, the raids on uh, the, the uh, Hijazi railroad, uh, the railroads uh, that through which the Turks supplied them were, uh, from a military point of view, I don't want to say marginal, but not critical. And um, speaking about your, your journeys around the world and the world leaders that you've uh, met over the... 15 years that you've already been uh, prime minister. Um, which of the ones that you've worked with and known have had a particularly strong sense of history in the past? Um, and, and have you found that it makes them better statesmen? First of all, you'll get me in trouble if I answer that. <laughs> now, so, I'm not asking you which ones don't have a great view of the past. Are there any in particular you've spoken about well, history I'll, to I'll you, you, you've interacted with about history for example yeah there, there are quite a few but uh, uh i would say that uh to skirt your answer to dodge it i would go, <laughs> to, someone, I would go to someone who uh, you know who didn't um uh, i didn't work with actually uh, but i got to meet and that was margaret thatcher she clearly had a historical perspective uh, uh reagan uh who people think wasn't well-read. He actually was quite well-read. Uh, and I'd met him uh, when I served as uh, Israel's uh, deputy chief of mission in Washington and later ambassador to, uh, uh, ambassador to uh, uh, Israel's ambassador to the UN. Uh, I'll tell you someone who had a sense of history for sure. I mean, uh, I think he was more an economist, but he had a sense of history and someone I deeply respected. Uh, and that was uh, George Shultz who uh, was, uh, uh, I think all these people came with a historic mission. They had a historical mission. They had a, a view of the world and a view of history that shaped their own politics. Uh, I don't think it's, it's uh, 
I don't think they were technicians. Uh, I think they were uh, they were steeped in this uh, uh, vision and the traditions that they came from. And I, I think it's very hard to be a leader of consequence if you don't have um, a historic purpose. I think it you, you'll just meander, sort of chase your tail, given the, the way that politics works, you'd just be chasing your tail again and again. You have to have a purpose and a mission. There is, a, of course, a negative side um, to the purpose and the mission in that Israel's um, and civilization's enemies and uh, antagonists also have their own sense of the past, don't they? And their own national myths and legends and narratives that actuate uh, them. I mean, the Iranians, for example, consider themselves to be the inheritors of the Persian Empire. Do you think, therefore, that a sense of history can have its own pitfalls as well as its benefits? Yeah, of course. I mean, look at Hitler. I mean, he had a completely uh, absurd uh, and, and, and false uh, reading of the past and some glorious past that never existed. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously all national myths are, uh, are steeped in, uh, in, in uh, uh, legends and so on. But uh, it's a question of what is the vision? If the vision is negative and you're guided by that mission, then you'll go into a negative position. It's the same thing as power. Uh, you, that, I would say having a historic purpose is uh, a necessity. It's a necessary condition for, uh, uh, for being a leader of consequence, but it's not sufficient. If your vision is wrong or, or, or uh, uh, murderous or uh, yeah. uh, uh, totally illiberal, then uh, you'd advance the values that are very bad. You'd, you'd create damage, uh, and that often happens. Uh, you have to be—you have to have at least a, a, a positive goal and a goal that meshes to a great extent with the historical facts. You cannot build. Uh, a future you cannot build peace on the, you know on fantasy and illusions because eventually these things crash on the rocks of reality so it's important to have a sense of uh, uh, of accuracy about history you, you can't just make your own it doesn't work because you, know, like you cannot manufacture for example in in economics you know do you have a vision yes i have a very clear vision i mean i read the I had a very clear vision going into, people didn't know that. They, they thought I entered, um, I was in the military and then I entered uh, political life through uh, diplomatic service. But I, was, uh, I had a very clear uh, view of how economies function and how, they, uh, uh, how we could achieve competitive advantage uh, economically. Now, uh, you cannot say, well, okay, but I have a different vision. Uh, and I will uh, advance one that is completely devoid of the laws of economics gravity. I'll decide, uh, you know, to uh, command economies, uh, <laughs> control, planning top down. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It is a fact. Now, uh, do you have leaders who are consumed with these things? Yeah, of course. You, you know these countries. Uh, so they might be able to develop weapons. That's the unfortunate thing. But they cannot develop economies and they cannot better the lives of their of their uh, citizens. Hmm. Uh, do you have a, a favorite counterfactual, favorite sort of what if moment in history when history might have taken a different turn? Well, I often wonder what would have happened if uh, uh, Herzl not died in 1904 because he, uh, he launched the whole Zionist revolution. He really was our modern Moses. 
uh, in, in eight short years as journalist. He was a journalist, he was a journalist, playwright, an enormously gifted person, uh, decided to embark on this idea of a Jewish state. He could see the fires of anti-Semitism, the embers already heating up uh, from previous uh, uh, from previous incidents. He understood in the Dreyfus trial that if you have this anti-Semitic uh, outburst, um, clearly framing an innocent man just because he was Jewish in France, which was the epitome of uh, Western civilization, then it could spread everywhere and consume the Jews of Europe. And he warned about it many times. So he was seized with that. He said, there's only one solution. I mean, the Jewish uh, solution was either uh, to uh, cosmopolitanism or, or communism. Uh, this was supposed to save the Jews. And he said, no, the, you're not going to be, that, that's not going to save the Jews. The one thing that will save the Jews is having a state of their own, uh, which uh, in which they could build, rebuild their national life and also defend their national life. Uh, it was this idea that he began that uh, he could launch in eight short years. He died tragically at the age of 44 in 1904. And I often think that had he, had, had he lived, I think at the end of Versailles, he, he said, by the way, he said, just to understand what, how, how brilliant this and how sagacious this man was, how prophetic. He said, I stand with a stopwatch and I wait for the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which is what Aronson was doing too. He didn't just stand, he helped it fall. And once that happens, we will move to uh, create the Jewish state and thereby save the Jewish future. Um, well, he died. And it's interesting that uh, a British writer, a uh, very famous British writer, Jewish writer, uh, Israel Zangwill, who was the, one of the great uh, writers uh, in the late 19th century in, in Britain, uh, he was captured by Herzl. He became a Zionist. So when Weizmann went to Versailles after the World War I, and uh, he, he didn't ask for a Jewish state, he, he, was, you know, he, he just stopped. Uh, with um, the Balfour Declaration, which didn't go the distance. And Aronson was too young and too, uh, not yet in a leadership position to demand more. Uh, when mm -hmm. Weizmann came back from Versailles, uh, Zangwill, who was a clear student of Herzl, he said, why didn't you ask for, why did you demand a Jewish state? And Weizmann, uh, who was a great diplomat, and an important leader, uh, he said, well, I didn't think I'd get it. He said, well, did you get it this way? So <laughs> in, other, in other words, Herzl, Herzl could break all these molds. Herzl could do things. And I believe and it's, Aronson would have, would have It's would extraordinary have to, thought, to think that if Herzl had lived into his 80s, uh, he would have been there at the time of the, of the foundation of the Jewish state. Well, he said, in fact, uh, he said that, uh, uh, that it, in 50 years, there'll be a, a, a state, there'll be a Jewish state. He said this exactly 50 years before there was a Jewish state. But I think his idea was that we would bring millions of Jews from Europe uh, to that state. He didn't think we'd be 600,000, you know, with our backs to the sea, uh, and that millions of Jews would go up in smoke. The reason he wanted a Jewish state, uh, the reason he was even contemplating uh, receiving a temporary state in Uganda uh, was in order to have uh, an escape place that Jews could, could uh, uh, Jews could escape the fires of anti-Semitism that ultimately consumed um, uh, a third of our people and all of European Jewry. 
so he, he, he saw that. And yes, I, I often think of what would have happened had uh, our modern Moses wouldn't have died so early. I think he probably would have been able to do that. And if he had Aronson by his side, I'm sure he would have done it. My last question, um, the one I ask all my guests, uh, what history book or biography are you reading at the moment? Well, right now, uh, actually, I'm reading your book. Uh, <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's, that's not, uh, that's not acceptable, totally, I'm afraid, um, Bibi, you're going to totally have to, this is just right, to uh, you know, come up to with another worse, one. <laughs> to make it worse, I just wrote my biography, so we're... Fantastic. We're I really, hugely looking forward problems. to that. When's your, uh, when's publication date? Well, it's, it's in a few months, in a few months, it will be, uh, it'll be published, and uh, I'd be interested in the... Uh, and your comments on it. Of course. But, uh, well, congratulations. I look forward enormously to, uh, to reading that. Um, Mr. Nessignon, thank you very much for taking us through what a, a new phrase, I think, but a particularly good one that you came up with earlier, the brittle arc of history. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.